0: The National Archives podcast series, Big Ideas, The Shape of Time, presented by Dr. Stephen Boyd-Davies. Just to uh, uh, clarify, most of what I'm going to talk about will be historical, uh, and I've got a wealth of what I think are interesting things for you to look at, so even if what I say turns out to be very dull, I hope that you find that uh, what there is to look at on the screen is very interesting. Uh, visualization has for centuries, literally centuries, been thought of as an important solution to a problem. This is Joseph Priestley in 1764 saying, and what words would do but very imperfectly and in a long time, this method, a visual method, effects in the completest manner possible and almost at a single glance. And that kind of sets the agenda for visualization for the ensuing uh, two and a half centuries. I'm just going to romp through, uh, without comment, a series of, without much comment, a series of images where you can see the number of uh, different ideas about how that might be done have been explored. Typographic, but enhanced with colour. Rather rhetorical sort of... uh, swirls of uh, flows of political currents. Uh, This is an attempt to build a a physical representation of time which would reconcile uh, evolution with biblical history. A network diagram of the history of um, European painting and sculpture. A physical exhibit with actual tangible objects embedded in a diagrammatic timeline something not very far from here at Kew Gardens. And of course increasingly screen-based digital representations of time in two, three and two and a bit dimensions. These are some of the pioneers, as I've warned you, most of my talks is going to be historical and at the very last minute I'll bring us up to date. So these are some of the pioneers who will be appearing during the talk. And these are the three aspects of the emergence of the modern timeline that I'm going to try and account for. The typographic, the pictorial and metaphorical, and the more mechanical, uh, perhaps mathematical, diagrammatic approach. Uh, And it's in fact that last one that I'm going to mainly concentrate on. And that's the one that's that's new, really, that emerges in the 18th century. So the typographic. Just to point out something horribly obvious, but maybe just worth mentioning, if you're trying to use something like lists or tables to represent historical time, a list will allow you to establish sequence, what happened before what. A list by its nature is a serial organisation of information which can readily represent a series of events. But of course a list on its own can't represent two things happening at the same time, perhaps in different parts of the world or different uh, areas of knowledge. So to get that kind of synchrony you'd need something which uses the other dimension, perhaps typographically. It could be as simple as a table which shows time going one way and Some other axis represents all that's happening at a particular moment. But to achieve a full representation of the gaps between events and the overall scale of time in which things occur, some sort of mapping, and I use that word very loosely, uh, is going to be required. So the typographic approach, uh, this is one of the famous pioneering examples. This is a much later edition than the original, but the original of Eusebius is thought to have shown not only sequence, but to a certain extent, synchrony. So you have coordinated lists side by side representing time flowing down the page because that's traditionally what we do with typography in the West, Uh, and then synchronous events flowing across the page. An interesting step forward... Was, which didn't really lead anywhere at the time, but became a kind of landmark for later workers, was that of Helvicus. Uh, because he realised that if he laid out a page in a, according to a rigid scale, that he could engineer it so that 100 years would be represented by every double page spread. So instead of simply filling the page with uh, instead of events simply taking up whatever space they needed, as it were. He organised the page so that every double page spread was a century. And he, as his own example, he makes clear that that allows you to see that the death of Darius is 100 years after the thing on the corresponding position on the previous page. So it's beginning to, just beginning to think of the surface of the paper as in some way a metric for time rather than simply a repository for events. Dufresne and I an important figure in a number of respects. Uh, The one that I want to pick out at the moment though is this is kind of transitional between being a list or a table and starting to move towards being a truly, uh, if you like, arithmetic diagram. Uh, but one of the interesting things about it which I think is really important for how we think about representing time now is that uh, he was a kind of he, he took a meta-level approach to history. So in his writing he's, he's talking about how s- history should be done. Uh, and he does not therefore say there is one timeline according to which events in history occurred. He actually very much draws attention to the fact that there are three rival ways of measuring, in this case, biblical history, and so produces a parallel table so that the reader can themselves try and negotiate those difficulties of of rival uh, dating schemes. Uh, Because one of the things that happens, I mean, I speak as a designer, but one of the things that can go badly wrong when you let graphic designers loose on representing history, is they like to tidy everything up. Uh, they make it look nice uh, and throw away a lot of the controversy, doubt, uncertainty uh, and uh, other kinds uh, and, and imprecision uh, in, in how hist- history and historiography actually work. So that was a very quick introduction to typographic approaches, which are one of the continuing strands as far back as we can trace and right through to our own time. Another important strand, though, is the pictorial, which attempts to capture the shape of history in some sort of metaphorical way. So here's quite an early example, 12th century, using a series of rings to to capture something important about the shape of historical knowledge. A tree-like structure, Trees are very popular, of course, and, of course, as, as you uh, are very familiar with, they uh, continue through to this day in the form of genealogies. And building on some of the uh, Renaissance work about the art of memory, uh, there's qu- re- another recurring theme is the idea of using something vivid, familiar and memorable, such as the human hand or the human body, as a, as a diagram, if you like, as a pictorial capturing of the shape of history. And a big influence on that. I mean, m- most of the... I, I apologise for the fact that my examples are all very much Western and European. Uh, and, of course, an enormous influence on how history was conceived and visually represented uh, was biblical. It's, it's a very significant influence and most of the difficulties which were perceived to arise in establishing chronology and visual representations of chronology arose from the puzzles about the apparent inconsistencies in the biblical accounts. You can see here that this passage where Daniel interprets Nebuchadnezzar's dream, it embodies, literally embodies history as a, as a statue made of various materials. And that kind of idea of a vivid, visual, material representation of history continued to Im- be important, even after more diagrammatic methods were introduced. So you can see these are, these are actually quite late examples, 1672. So, onto the main subject, the diagrammatic representation. And this is really what is new and emerges in the 18th century and continues down to our own time. And a big influence, actually, both on pictorial approaches and diagrammatic, is geography and cartography. There was a long tradition of associating chronology and geography. It took me ages to finally track down the original of this idea. But I think I've traced it back to uh, (coughs) this. This seems to be the earliest occurrence, 1563. Uh, when this idea is first introduced to, as it were, duos velut oculos historiae, to, uh, as it were, eyes of history. This idea that where things took place, the geography of history, and when they took place, chronology, are the two <laughs> eyes, the, the essential uh, sensory mechanisms, if you like, on which uh, history is based. Now one of the key influences, it's obvious from looking at the way that 18th century writers write about their attempts to diagram history, is cartography and simply the proliferation throughout the 17th and 18th century of lovely things. (laughs) Several writers about chronology talk about how, even though they are talking up chronology, they talk about how unbelievably dull and dry it is uh, compared with geography which is uh, served by all these really very lovely objects uh, which an 18th century gentleman, and that's principally what we're talking about here, uh, would be able to collect, study, uh, discuss with friends, keep in the um, library and so forth. So here's an example of a diagram of history which is modelled in many respects, as you can see, on geography, but which takes a principally pictorial approach. Because I'd argue that you can see maps both as pictures, they are, after all, aerial views of territory, but you can also see them as uh, mathematical coordinate spaces, and those two different ways of thinking about mapping space Appear in these early mappings of time. So, this is an ambitious, in the end, deeply flawed and faintly mad <laughs> uh, attempt to diagram history. Uh, so, what's going on here is that you have uh, six principal territories of Europe, uh, and each of them has what we'd now think of as a timeline, which is an axis running through the center. The center represents the existence of the Roman Empire in time and place and then this horizontal line divides pre-Christ to and Anno Domini Uh, and you can see if we zoom in on this a little bit this is the kind of central processing unit through which history passes. You can see some really odd things have had to be done here in order to get this conceit to work so that This is how we are used to seeing Europe. Uh, But in the top half, of course, it has to be mirrored and rotated in order to get the axes to pass through the right countries. Uh, And something I didn't notice until I looked at the whole diagram from a distance and, and the extremely lengthy explanation that the author of this diagram made doesn't ever actually comment on it, is that before Rome, all of history is wiggly like this. And then it passes through this sort of Roman CPU. And when it comes out the <coughs> other side, it's all been regularised and sort of <coughs> time has become a series of canals rather than meandering rivers. And not content with making that ambitious diagram, uh, the author created two different language versions of a lengthy explanation of how this would work, including this diagram of the diagram... Uh, it really does go on for a very, very long time. But it does allow me to make a transition to another key influence. Uh, you can see here that, I mean, he's really thinking almost in terms of multimodal learning, as we would now call it, because he talks about how one might negotiate this diagram. Somebody, perhaps a servant, a well educated servant, he doesn't say who should do this, but somebody reads from the historical account while you, as it were, virtually navigate this diagram. Uh, And he suggests even putting it on a table so that the whole thing can be rotated so you can see down different time axes. And that brings us to another contributory tradition, which is this... And that was primarily pictorial, but there is this other important mechanical and mathematical tradition. Exemplified by this a Volvel made at almost exactly the same time as the diagram you were just looking at. This is actually in many ways much less ambitious. It's terribly simple. All that the pointer does is to allow you to always have a reminder of which kingdoms each of the concentric circles represents. We can look at that in a bit more detail. You can see that, as often happens with these uh, historic examples people have added in additional data. And the very long tradition that feeds into this, this is the famous example of the sort of combinatorial approach to knowledge represented by a series of paper discs in an edition of uh, Lull's Ars Magna, uh, and another nice piece of paper engineering. This is absolutely full of uh, these beautifully printed and constructed diagrams. So these are almost for doing computation. They are like paper computers. Uh, that volvelle that we started with, the Weigel one of history, doesn't really do any computation, but it does use some of the same techniques. And it certainly draws on the idea of uh, linear, almost mathematical approaches to history. Of course, if you're going to have some, a dial on one side of the page, you've got to have something to anchor it on the other side. So it must have been extraordinarily precise printing to make sure that the text on the back lines up with the text on the other side of the sheet so that this little stick-on piece of paper over the pivot uh, falls exactly in the right place without obscuring any of the words. Now, one of the people who assisted uh, Dufresne with his chart, sort of uh, parallel timelines as textual lists, was this chap, uh, La Bruyere. And this, I think, is probably the key example of taking geography as a model but then doing something which is mathematical and mechanical with it rather than pictorial. You can see how heavily it's inspired by current practice in geography. And in fact, this man had spent considerable amounts of time in Holland, which of course was a major centre of cartography, Uh, He spent many years living with a household uh, populated by the the chief uh, French map-making dynasty. Uh, So he's clearly absorbed many of the conventions and practices of map-making, solid colour, interlining, different kinds of boundary markings, different scales of uh, typography, different styles of typography to represent things of different importance, and so on. But what he does, instead of thinking of mapping as picture-making of history, he thinks of it as a kind of coordinate space. And he makes clear in his explanation, and I believe me, I've spent a lot of time wading through these explanations, that every point on this surface has meaning. Because time runs down, space runs across, Wherever possible, within the limits of getting three dimensions into two, or in this case two dimensions into one, he's tried to get the countries in the parallel columns next to the countries which they most significantly border in the actual globe. And so the width of a given block represents its uh, territorial extent and or importance. He's a bit unclear about that. And the depth, of course, represents time. Though time on a non-linear scale, uh, there's more space allowed for recent history than there is for ancient history, Uh, which is a very, very common approach. And in many respects, of course, a very wise one because we tend to have a wealth of data for recent times and very little data for distant times. So giving more space where you've got more data just up to a point is the obvious thing to do. So here's an overview of the entire chart. You can see it's actually called a Mundi historique, a Mundi at that time being a double disc map which shows the entire globe in geography. But he's then borrowed that word to represent the idea of totality of mapping all of history. Uh, And he gets very cross about other publications which attempt to cover all of history but which ignore large areas of the world and significant periods of time. We know that this was definitely influential. It was almost immediately a completely ripped-off version of it uh, produced in England, uh, claiming to be, with considerable improvements... And we know that the original author of the French version was extremely cross about this and certainly didn't regard it as having any considerable improvements and, in fact, suggested it didn't make any sense. So we've had this rapid romp through these three contributory uh, influences on our modern conceptualization of how to depict history. Simply laying out type so events just appear as lists and tables trying to metaphorize all of history or some significant period of it using a, a striking and vivid pictorial metaphorical image or increasingly in the 18th century this idea of mathematical or almost coordinate like approaches and it's a lot of writers have thought about this it's actually really difficult for us now to stop thinking about history as a as a coordinate space, as it were, in which events are positioned. But there really does seem to be quite a lot of evidence that that wasn't the primary way of thinking about history until the 18th century. It's really under the influence of Descartes with his idea of a number line, Newton with his idea of time as a uniform reference frame for events. It's really as those things start to populate into The broader culture, that the conception of time that probably everyone in this room is carrying around in their heads as a coordinate space with events positioned in it really starts to emerge. I want to tie modern studies to uh, the historical now rather than simply remaining in history by picking on one particular question as an illustration. Which way does time travel? Does it travel? Do we remain uh, stationary while um, time comes towards us? Or is time a virtual space in which we navigate? And there is evidence in verbal and other metaphors for different ways of thinking about that. There's even some evidence from psychological studies that people who have a bad feeling about something forthcoming feel that time, they are stationary and time is coming towards <coughs> them, whereas people who have a positive feeling about something that's uh, going to occur see time as a space in which they are stepping forward. There's, a, there's an increasing wealth of interesting and useful literature about these things. But I'd like to just pick out one interesting puzzle. In these various mat- metaphors, many of them if they are verbal, use the the through-the-body axis, the sagittal axis. So we talk about, I look forward to seeing you, look back in anger. These are things which are aligned through the body. And there's a certain, though much less strong evidence, that gestural metaphors, on the other hand, take place (coughs) across the body, so we say, oh, I used to do that, but now I do something else. So we, we don't then... So we, when we use language, we think like this about time through the body, through the central axis from front to back. But when we gesture about time, we tend to gesture across the body. Uh, and, of course, a lot of research has been done to try and establish to what extent any of either of these things or other ways of representing time including graphical, uh, are modelled on something, anything that might turn out to be fundamental about us and to what extent they're modelled on uh, cultural expectations. So connecting that to historical examples, this is a chart of history consisting of multiple sheets. Uh, There are two versions of this publication, one in which they are simply sheets uh, presented in a folio separately but in the more remarkable version and it really emphasises the growth of kind of mechanistic um, machine based approaches to history this is not a mistake, this chart really is 16 and a half metres long it's this wonderful thing so this is a machine for navigating history Uh, and I've actually been to Princeton and twiddled these handles myself uh, so uh, the author talks about how, uh, as a kind of changing tableau, one can see history moving back and forth in front of one's eyes. Uh, of course, one of the problems he had uh, mentioned before, how we generally have a lot of data about recent times and very little about the past, this is, of course, still a period when biblical history is assumed to be factual history. Uh, so the world starts with God, and very shortly afterwards we have Adam and Eve, Cain and Abel, uh, but we don't have much else <laughs> in the first few months or even years of history conceived in that way. Uh, so the the first sheet of this immensely long 16 and a half metre chart really contains very very few events, and quite a few of the sheets that follow it don't really contain that much either. As many uh, authors of these kinds of documents do, one of the ways of making sense of history is to extract individuals, uh, key individuals, Uh, and authors at the time of course were generally sophisticated enough to be aware that that selection process was a problem. In selecting, they were saying that these people are important, and by implication, all other people are not important. And some of the writers in the 18th century did actually acknowledge the difficulties of making those decisions. Something which, with digital and interactive media, is a problem we can effectively postpone indefinitely uh, because we can keep changing our minds about what's important and why. Uh, The example at Princeton is it's Speculated that it may have belonged to the author of the document himself, because the sorts of things that he's added by hand are the things that he was known to be interested in. But I was talking about what direction time travels in. Now you've just seen that in that immensely wide diagram, it's this high, but it's 16 and a half meters from end to end, horizontally that uh, time travels from left to right. It's odd, therefore, that when he describes it, he talks about things happening in columns. Now, there are no columns. (laughs) Everything is horizontal. Uh, And it looks to me as if when he was planning this document, he expected time to be organised vertically and afterwards changed his mind and made time horizontal. And one of the most obvious explanations for that is simply that when you attempt to label things, labels in standard Roman Western handwriting, of course, are inherently horizontal. So it's actually much easier to make a diagram where the labels follow the line of history rather than where the labels keep cutting across history, uh, extending in the other dimension. So I suspect that at the last minute he changed his mind but accidentally continued to refer to these things, these structures as columns. There's no evidence at all that the word column, although it was used at the time to represent things like a column of text in a newspaper, it was never used to represent something yeah, horizontal. Priestley and Barbeau Dubourg, whose uh, text we were just looking at, had a mutual friend in uh, Benjamin Franklin. They were aware of each other's work through Franklin in representing history diagrammatically. They were both passionate about using uniform time scales. And you saw just now the problems that that gave the Frenchman in terms of having lots and lots of empty space for early history. Priestley is really interesting in that he actually remarks on the significance of empty space, (coughs) which of course is something that arises when you have a uniform space and a kind of coordinate system approach to history. He explicitly comments that empty spaces are as instructive as spaces full of data, although he slightly confuses uh, whether events occurred or whether we know about events uh, he, didn't, he wasn't subtle enough to make that distinction to explain empty spaces. But one of the nice things he did, picking up one of my earlier themes, is to recognize that he was r- actually the first person to consistently draw lines to represent individual lifetimes. And in so doing, he realized that he might be saying something untrue. He might be suggesting that something was certain when, in fact, it was uncertain. And you can see the very simple but effective method he used for dealing with that. Uh, And it's effectively a code, but a very direct visual code. If there's a little bit of uncertainty, we get one dot, two dots for more uncertainty, three dots for serious uncertainty. And if we're really not sure at all either about the start or end of someone's life, it ends up being all dots. Priestley's diagram went through multiple editions In the first handbook to his first edition he uses the word column over and over again and there are no columns in his diagram either. And you can show that as different editions of this handbook come out uh, the word column appears fewer and fewer times as he eventually adjusts the text to accurately represent the diagram that he's really made. And as I say I'm pretty convinced that the main reason for abandoning a vertical orientation for history and going for a horizontal one is simply that it makes it much easier to write the kind of textual labels for events that you've already seen. So what graphics, in theory, should enable us to do is to make sense of history. So as designers we are in a position to help the reader, the historian, the archivist, the analyst, the reader in general to form a more meaningful structured view of history. We can use those to transmit information to the reader, we can communicate to them and up to a point even these paper timelines allowed a kind of interrogation Uh, several of the early authors point out that if you make history visual it makes it accessible in a variety of different ways you can investigate it by uh, looking at a particular time in various different places you can investigate a country or a (laughs) dynasty running through time so even with a static diagram they would argue and I don't see any reason to disagree with them that there's some uh, potential for the user to interrogate the information. Uh, But, of course, with digital and interactive data formats, then we really can actually do work on that information. Some of the questions and design problems that arise, and, of course, as a designer, I really like these problems, I'm fascinated by these difficulties, are some terribly basic things. Should time be best represented by a uniform time scale, which gives you a really, if you like, truthful image of the distances between events at whatever period that they appeared in? Or was it more sensible to structure the uh, scales around the amount of data you're likely to have available? Again, of course, with digital and interactive media, if you use the capabilities of those media to the full, again, you should be able to postpone that decision and allow the user to make the choices as to whether, for the purposes of the moment, uh, a particular way of scaling the data is most useful. What can you do to facilitate visual search? It has to be said, I was talking to the person who first introduced me to these historic timelines, Professor Michael Twymart. Twyman at Reading University many years ago, and he said to me, The sad thing is, Stephen, you know, none of these things really work. <laughs> uh, because actually, as soon as you have an ambitious, large paper diagram of history, it becomes shockingly difficult to find anything in it. Uh, and of course, again, digital media uh, should enable us to do exactly that. There's also the question which I very briefly touched on of, are we just going to kind of spray the data onto a surface, be it physical or digital, and let the meaning take care of itself, which up to a point people like Dubourg and Priestley were doing. But at the time, some people said, "This this isn't making sense of history, this is just throwing facts at the page. And there continued to be a really deep interest in ways in which you could use visual metaphor, uh, if you like, rhetorical shaping of history to tell a story. Uh, So what should be our benchmark there? What can we do to enable people to find and filter information? And something which uh, I've discussed with your colleagues here uh, at the National Archives, how can we, rather than being stuck as they were in the days of paper and copper plate engraving with a single data set which is fixed forever, how can we draw together different data sets and represent those in a a single coherent representation? And uh, I've already flagged my own interest in representing uncertainty, not only to be truthful about the facts of history, whatever that means, but also just to be true about history-making, about the fact that it is an uncertain task, and what can we do to offer some kind of audit trail so that when the user sees something on the screen, they can, they can poke it and prod it and find out why it's represented the way it is, uh, what the underlying data is, Uh, and what were the sources of those data. I'm fortunate to have two doctoral students looking at these issues. One of them, uh, Florian, is working under an EPSRC award, uh, and that's been devoted to timelines of cultural data. And starting only a few weeks ago, Sam uh, is working here, I'm very glad to say, uh, looking specifically at things like representing uncertainty and fuzziness and using visualization to integrate multiple data sets. So in the last few minutes, I just want to show you a few examples, not, of course, of Sam's work, because he only started the other day, but of Florian's. So this is just a static diagram, but it's remarkably powerful once you start to interrogate it. All that we've done here is to represent the date of composition of each of Benjamin Britten's works in one timeline and the date of first performance in the lower timeline. So the, those of you who are still awake will notice that there must be something wrong with the data because some things were performed before they were written <laughs> as they're represented by lines going the wrong way. So that's one of the things visualisation does for you, is to show you things that are wrong in your data. <laughs> but more interestingly than that, there's a whole wealth of things here. Britain was shockingly prolific as a boy, and then he went to be taught by, uh, a, a, as it were, a proper composer, who told him to stop writing so many pieces and to do each of them better rather than simply churning them out. And You can see this dramatic closing down of the quantity of pieces that he's writing. And it also tells us a lot about how we understand a a given artist's work as a corpus. Because you notice that we've got some terribly obvious stuff. We've got all this vertical rain, which represents something being composed and then being performed shortly afterwards. But then we've got this slew of sort of uh, oblique connectors and you can see what's happening there is that long after he stopped composing and indeed stopped living, first performances are taking place is of the juvenilia. So instead of people as here thinking, Benjamin Britten's listen, uh, created a new piece of work, let's listen to that piece, people are thinking of him as a whole and thinking, in order to understand Benjamin Britten as a totality, we need to go back to these very, very early pieces. Of course, the very early pieces acquire additional value, cultural value, uh, because they are connected to a lifetime of output. This is another piece, just a very simple sort of grab-it-and-feel-it approach to visualisation. So this is Britain again. Simply allowing the user to extract by the forces used music for different instruments or different voices taking a break from his studies but still very much feeding into them florian took part in a composition organized by microsoft and uh, visualizing.org and he decided to represent all of time Uh, and of course the main thing that comes out of it uh, is simply our own pathetically trivial occupation of the very, very last moments of time as we understand it. So this is taking the Tate collection data, which is simply thrown by the Tate onto GitHub for anyone to play with. Uh, And it illustrates a few important points. It's very much about that business of allowing the user not just to look at data, but to probe it and interrogate it. Wherever possible, we've followed the slogan, if you like, uh, of Ben Schneiderman, someone who did work in visualising time a couple of decades ago or more, but no, there should be no output that's not also an input. So if you can see something, you can interact with it generally. It also illustrates semantic zooming. So using a measure of importance, and remember I said before that fortunately we can decide in an interactive system what the criteria of importance are. As you run out of space to represent a very large number of artists, then the key, the, the ones currently deemed to be the most important are the ones that keep their labels, uh, while the ones which are, n- are not important lose their labels. Of course, that's absolutely standard practice in geographic mapping, as you know, when you're using your satnav or whatever. Uh, as you choose a more and more distant view and more and more places appear in the view, uh, it's only the important ones which keep their labels. But it's not generally been applied so far to time. And then just one more, again, using the Tate data. And, of course, we can use the interface, we can use the diagram as an interface to the content, So rather than thinking of it as a diagram which is in some way separate from the content, the diagram and the content are closely enmeshed. Anything that we can find, we can interrogate. So if we want to see all of the Leighton work, for example, we can simply colour it. As we zoom out, then only the works associated with that artist uh, are indicated uh, and we can also simply choose to hide uh, anything we don't currently want to see and see what the data set looks like then so you saw that enormous vertical block in the n- early 19th century uh, that huge block is there because every single thing by Turner which is in the Tate collection down to the level of individual sketchbook pages is given its own catalogue entry So not only do they have an enormous amount of Turner, more than half of the objects in the Tate collection are Turners, Mm -hmm. but the cataloguing method has led to them seeming to be an even greater proportion, because as I say, every single page is indexed. So what uh, we just did in the bit I talked over was we eliminated all of the Turner images, and then we ended up with another mysterious block, and we were able, this tall bar here and we're able to interrogate that, uh, and that turns out to be an artefact arising again from the way that the things have been catalogued. Florian and I and others have spent quite a lot of time writing about this, so if you want to follow up any of these issues, I hope I haven't put you off the whole question forever, then uh, these are some of the places you can look. I couldn't pass um, mentioning this Beautiful and fascinating book by Rosenberg and Grafton, which came out a few years ago now, uh, which is a a, a really lovely but also very scholarly uh, pictorial history of these attempts to represent time. And I and Florian, and no doubt soon Sam, uh, occasionally blog things about our work if anyone really wants to look at those. Thank you for your attention. That, for now, is it. Thank you very much. This talk was recorded live on the 3rd of November 2014 at the National Archives Queue. This podcast is copyright to the National Archives, all rights reserved.